A friend of mine named Todd wrote a book a few years ago called Canoeing the Mountains, and he told in this book the story of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. You know, you may know a little bit about um, Lewis and Clark and their journey. They were commissioned in 1805 by Thomas Jefferson to find a water route from St. Louis, Missouri to the Pacific Ocean. This was essentially to win the trade war uh, at the time. This is, they were looking for the water route that everyone, all the cartographers and geographers of the time were absolutely certain existed. And so the two of them in their core of discovery went out and there were many, many brutal, brutal months. And they finally um, got to the Missouri River and there they spent the winter of 1806 with uh, the Manit tribe. And the Manit tribe basically told them, yeah, you can get to the Pacific once you cross the river. You just have to cross over some mountains um, before you get there. Now, you know, they had crossed the Appalachians without a problem. They had done it in canoes. Um, they were experienced rivermen. Um, they li- literally believed that the hardest part of the journey was behind them and that they were just going to sort of crest over these rolling hills, find the Columbia River, and drift downstream towards the Pacific. So you can imagine what they must have felt and experienced when they came up over uh, the hill after they crossed the Missouri River, um, thinking that they would see something like this, uh, and instead uh, seeing this. What do you do? I mean, that is a serious crisis. I mean, what, do they just cancel the mission? Do they turn back, turn around? What do they do? How, how do rivermen suddenly become mountaineers? Well, I tell you what they did. It's a, it's a really amazing story. They just decided to renew the mission. They said it's going to be a different mission than we thought, it's different terrain, different obstacles but the mission is the same. And so we adapt. And they recommitted the mission. They remembered who they were. They remembered what they were called to do. And they forged ahead to the sea. And they made it. They renewed the mission. Friends, this has been a really exciting season. And this is an exciting moment for me and for all of us. Because what I want to suggest to you is that we are a part of a mission together. We're part of a long journey, a journey, a mission that we didn't start. Uh, It started way back in uh, 1834 when a group of men and women from First Presbyterian Church were commissioned and sent down to the docks on the James River in Shaco Bottom to share the good news of Jesus with the people who worked down on the docks. Uh, And that mission began, and they began to form a community, and a church began to form. But eventually, they got to be large enough that they said, what do we do? We're no longer a little mission. We needed a permanent home. So the next stage of that journey began in 1873 uh, when they moved up to the hill, Church Hill, and they built a building there in 1873, and that building became the permanent home at least for a while, of Third Church. And there, in that place, the ministry flourished. But guess what? After a while, the terrain changed. New mountains arose, new obstacles. And by 1956, 
the church had dwindled down to less than 100 people. Most of the people had either died in the war or moved away, and they were trying to figure out what to do. And so what they decided to do is they decided to take a risk. The presbytery worked with them, and they decided to replant Third Church in this new part of the city that was growing at the time out here in the West End. And so they replanted westward in 1956. And guess what? The church flourished. And for the next 20 years, the church flourished uh, in this new location as they continued the mission here in this place. But then a couple decades later, in the mid-1970s, they hit another mountain, another obstacle. Uh, The church began to age. And there were no young families left in the church. And the church had dwindled down to less than 100 people again. And again, the leaders had to ask, what do we do? What do we do about this new obstacle that we reach? And again, they took a risk. They called a young, inexperienced, uh, but very fiery and gifted young preacher named Alan Meenan to be their preacher. And they also eventually called another young man named Richard Haney. Uh, And the two of them began to lead this community and many young families uh, began to come And then that baton was passed on to Bill Long, and then that baton was passed on to Steve Hartman. And in the years between uh, 1977 and 2015, third grew 2,500%. In every single one of these chapters of the story, in every single one of these points in the journey, there was a barrier, there was a mountain, there was an obstacle. And in every one of those cases, the leaders had to ask, what do we do? And in every time, they took a risk, to forge ahead with the same mission in new terrain. And God blessed their faithfulness and God faithfully led them forward. Continue the mission of third. So friends, here we are. We're now uh, in 2020. And a few years ago, when I was called to be your lead pastor, the first thing that we did is we studied the terrain. We looked at what mountains were facing us. And what we discovered is that there were two significant mountains, obstacles that faced us. One external out there in the culture and one internal here. The first one externally out there, we realize that we are now living in our church is positioned in a culture that is unlike any culture in America that Third Church has ever faced. Our experts have described the time that we live in in America with the acronym VUCA, Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous. Uh, For perhaps the first time in 1,500 years in the West, we have multiple religious communities living side by side together, even in the suburbs of West Richmond, multiple worldviews living alongside one another. We're a more multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-global society than we have ever known. It's obvious to say this, but the culture no longer shares the values of the church. It has dramatically changed, even from 50 years ago, even 20 Years ago. Now, often the church is perceived as an optional, out of touch, irrelevant relic of the past. And so we have this big external mountain out there that confronts us with a new situation. What do we do? Also, we saw that we have some internal obstacles as well. We realized that we needed to clarify our mission and vision, we needed clear pathways for people to get into community and to be discipled. We needed clarity of leadership structure. And of course, a big obstacle that arose in our study was our building that was built for a very different time and place. 
which was inhibiting community and relationships, which was sucking huge amounts of time and money and preventing us from growing anymore as a congregation. So here we were, 2020, these new sets of obstacles before us, and we asked the same question, what do we do? What do we do? You know, we're, we're people facing the Rockies when we only ever face the Appalachians. And friends, we do what God's people have always done. We remember who we are. We remember who we belong to. We remember our mission. We remember that though the terrain looks different, the mountains look different, the mission stays the same. And we're called today to recommit to the mission that God's people have called us to as we venture forth into new territory. What does that mean? Well, I want to look with you this morning at this Hebrews text from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19. Someone someone before the service today um, asked me, um, so what text did you choose today? Ananias and Sapphira? Are you hoping people um, gets, no, we're not, we're, no, one, no one's getting struck dead today bringing up the collection. Um, I want you to know that that is not the spirit that we are nurturing today. Um, I chose this passage for today, Commitment Sunday, because it speaks so relevantly to God's people when they are in moments of transition, pivotal moments. Okay? We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's still a mystery to scholars today. We do know this, is that the person was obviously Jewish and had a deep understanding of the Old Testament temple sacrificial system. Uh, we also know that this person was clearly a pastor, that they loved their people and they had a shepherd's heart and they wanted to exhort and encourage and even warn and, and equip God's people. And, and ultimately we know that these people that he was writing to were facing obstacles. They were facing mountains, persecutions of some kind, hardships. It's clear from the letter that many of them were getting worn out. They were losing their faith. They were struggling with what they believed. Um, they were even stopping some of their habits of worshiping and meeting together. Uh, they were becoming spiritually apathetic in some cases. And so this pastor is writing to God's people to help them recommit to mission in this new mountain that they faced together. So let's look at what this author writes. Verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Notice that in this text, the first thing this pastor does is to remind them of Jesus, to remind them of the one who has fulfilled the whole Old Testament. It's amazing that in these three verses, he sums up the previous nine and a half chapters of his book. He uses, you'll notice, three distinct Old Testament metaphors to describe the person of Jesus. Look at with me. First verse 19, he says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. There was a, a holy of holies, which was like the super special holy place in the middle of the temple that only the priest could go, and even then could only do so through the blood sacrifice of an animal. 
And he says all that blood and all that sacrifice was pointing to Jesus. It is only him and him alone who shed blood can purify a conscience and a soul so that we might enter in to fellowship with God. He is the sacrifice. Uh, Second, he says in verse 20, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. That is his body. So in the holy, there was a curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. It was the door, if you will, that kept people out from the presence of God. And he says, Jesus now has become the door that opens up to let us in to the very presence of God. He's the sacrifice. He's the door. And then finally, uh, he says, we have a great high priest over the house of God. That Jesus is not just the sacrifice. He's not just the curtain. He is the priest, the one who represents us before God and goes before us. So this is amazing. And in every possible way, the entire Old Testament system uh, is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who is now our sacrifice, our curtain, our door, our priest. He has opened the way for every person to enter in to deep intimacy with God, the creator of the universe. So that's the first thing. I want you to note this. This is the first thing that we are called to do in moments of transition is to remember Jesus, the one who has opened the way. He reminds them not of religion, which says do all these things and then you can get access to God. No, the gospel is the opposite. It says Jesus has done all of these things. So now you have free access to enter into God's presence on the merits of his sacrifice through grace alone. Come on in. Jesus has opened the way. So the first thing he does is to remind them of the grace of the gospel. But then look at this. After he reminds them of Jesus, he then moves on to the call to action. Okay, so if you notice the structure, there's two since phrases. Since we have confidence, verse 19. Since we have a great high priest, verse 20. And then he moves on and he gives them three lettuces. You see that? (laughs) Not romaine or arugula. Um, Dad joke, sorry. Uh, But three lettuces. He says, let us draw near, let us hold fast. And let us consider. So he says, because of Jesus, because Jesus has opened the way for us to know God intimately, we now have a mission. We now have a calling. We now have action to take on the basis of Jesus and our new identity as God's people in and through him. So let's renew our commitment to what he's called us to do and to be. And that's what I want you to hear today, friends, is that in this transition point that we are in, this moment, this key pivotal moment in the life of our church, this is not just about a building. I hope you know that by now. That this is about the renewal of our commitment, the renewal of our mission, the renewal of what we're called to be and do together because of Jesus. So what are we called to renew? Well, first, uh, we're called to renew our commitment to God. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. He says, Jesus has opened the way for any person, no matter their sin or their background or their guilt, to come right into the presence of God, into the holiest place. Some of you know that I worked for for a few years for this famous author and pastor named John Stott. And we would travel all over the world to all of his different speaking engagements. And one of the best parts of traveling with John Stott is that he had access to any airport lounge in any airport in any city of the world. 
Um, you know, he had flown so many miles. He had so many billions of miles that he could get into any airport lounge in the country, and some in, in the world. And some of these airport lounges are very swanky, you know, especially the ones in Singapore and Far East Asia. And they're just really important if you're jet lagged and super tired. And so what we would do is we would walk up to one of these very fancy lounges and he would pull out his card and they would say, oh, welcome, Dr. Stott, please come in. And then they would eye me suspiciously. <laughs> and, then, and then John Stott would say, oh, he's with me. And they would say, fine. And, and let me in. Now, I've, I've tried this without him. I've tried to sort of look sweet. I've tried to pull the pastor card. You know, I've tried all sorts of things. It doesn't work. You know, these, and as nice as the men and women appear at these desks, um, they are bar- very strong barriers. And so what this, what this author is saying is this, is look, do you see? You, you have total access into the most amazing place, the very presence of of God, it doesn't matter what guilt you carry. It doesn't matter what shame covers you. It doesn't matter what is on your conscience. It doesn't matter what dark thoughts you had last night that you are afraid that anyone would ever know. He's saying, look, when you walk up into the presence of God, you're not walking up on your own merits. Jesus is with you, and he says, she's with me. He's with me. They're with me. And we just walk right in to the very presence of the Trinity. This is our privilege. And he says, make use of that privilege all the time. Do it on your own. Notice though, this is very communal. He says, let us draw near to God together. He surely has in mind public worship, what we're doing right now as we come together every week to hear God's word and to sing songs of praise and to confess our sin and receive uh, the grace of Jesus and to take the sacraments and to, and to be sent out in his name. It's happens in public worship, but it also happens in our homes as we gather in small groups and parish groups and other places around the city to draw near together to God, to keep each other on the path of following Jesus together. And so I just want to say this, friends, that in this pivotal moment of transition in our journey in Third Church, the most important thing, the first most thing we can do is to renew our commitment to God. That's what's kept us on track for 185 years. If we have success in this Renew campaign, if we move forward in the next 10 years um, accomplishing what we believe that God has given us to do, it will not be, please hear me on this, it will not be because of our ingenuity and our money uh, and our power uh, and our problem-solving skills. It will not be because of the plan and it certainly will not be because of the pastor. Our success relies on God alone, that we are together drawing near to the one who has drawn close to us. He is the one who gives us success, and we throw ourselves on his mercy. All of our plans are as nothing before him. We today renew our commitment to him because it is only through God, our intimacy with him through Jesus, that we can move forward across the next mountain. You hear me, friends? So we're renewing our commitment to God. Second, though, we're renewing our commitment to each other. Look at verse 25. It says, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. That is the day of the kingdom, the day of Christ's coming. You know, I, I love that the early church used as a symbol of the Christian life a wheel. Imagine a wagon wheel. Can you picture a wagon wheel in your mind with all the spokes that move towards the center? And if the center is the Holy Trinity, God himself, um, 
as each person draws closer to the center, closer to God, what happens? We also all draw closer to each other. Jesus has opened the way, not just to God, but also to real relationships, deep, authentic community that we were made for. That's part of what happens when we recommit together. You know, one of the most exciting things about this campaign has been this deepened sense of love and unity and joy about our common mission together. Have you felt that together during this season? This, you know, this prayer loom is amazing. Did you notice this up here? You know, this is over 1,100 individual prayers that men and women and boys and girls have woven together and then Mark and Beth Sprinkle and some other folks spent days with two sewing, sewing machines that they have ultimately incapacitated and finished by hand, sewing all of this together. Isn't that amazing? Can we just give them a hand for what they, they did there? And what's amazing about it is that like, we, don't, we don't come here with like, our own individual hopes and dreams and prayers. No, we're coming together. God has woven us together. He's woven us together and given us a, a prayer as a, as, a, as a new family drawn together by Jesus. This is a very powerful moment in our family history. And so if we're going to launch into this new uncharted territory across a new mountain, um, we've got to just not just renew our commitment to God, but to, to each other. And so much of our strategic vision for the next 10 years is about community. It's about relationships because we know we live in a profoundly fragmented and lonely society and so a top priority of our vision for the next 10 years is Christian community. And so that's why we've devised our parish life to deepen community out there so that you actually can live out a Christian life with fellow Christians in common neighborhoods with a common mission, pursuing authentic relationships with each other to encourage each other as this text says. We also want for our building, our spiritual house here, to be a place not just with narrow hallways and classrooms, but where we can truly be a community together, like Anna spoke about in that video, where we can eat and talk and play, learn and pray and counsel and courage. We want this to be a place that deepens community, that enlarges community so that more people, more diverse people, people of varying abilities and disabilities can feel welcome and so that we can deepen community even in this place. So as we forge ahead, we're not just renewing our commitment to God, you see. We're also renewing our commitment to each other, family. Finally, we also see that he calls us to renew our commitment to our neighbors and our city and our world. You know, the gospel always has an outward thrust. Imagine that wagon wheel again. You know, the gospel's always centripetal. Do you remember that from physics? It always moves us towards the center. We're always being invited by the Spirit through Jesus to the Father, right into the center of the heart of God. But it's not just centripetal. What else is it? Do you remember the opposite of centripetal, friends? Centrifugal. Centrifugal. Is that how you say it? Moving out from the center, that the gospel always not just draws us in, but propels us outward to the world in need. We see that movement in this text, verse 23. It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, the ESV says, hold fast the confession of our hope. You know, in a society where it was probably dangerous and scary sometimes to publicly profess faith, this pastor was saying, no, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God is faithful. You have good news to share. And so don't be afraid to confess your faith 
in Jesus who draws you close to God. But it's not just our message, it's our life. Look at verse 24. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So it's not just our words, it's our works. And in our society like ours that's frankly very cynical about Jesus and religion and the gospel, it is often our works, our our works of love and mercy, uh, justice and care of our neighbors that will speak even more loudly sometimes than our words. So it is through our words and deeds, our proclamation and demonstration that we're called to extend the good news of Jesus to our neighbors, our city, in our world. And this is part of our vision, friends. For the, It always has been and it certainly is a part of our vision for the next 10 years is that we want our church to not just be a church for us but for our neighbors, for our city, for our world. You know, I've used different uh, metaphors to describe our church building here over the last month. I've talked about our building as a home, a place where our spiritual family is nurtured and cared for. Uh, I've, I've said this building is like a school or a training ground where, where spiritual youngsters are built up into maturity in Jesus. And today I want to use a different metaphor that our building is also a mission outpost. It's a sending point where God's gospel is proclaimed where people are equipped and then sent out to extend the good news of Jesus to our community. I want you to hear me on this. Becoming a missionary church to our community in this new terrain will require change. Change to our tactics, change to our approach. For many years in the West, the church has operated on the basis of the first verse of the nursery rhyme, Little Bo Peep. You You know how that nursery rhyme goes? says, little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and can't tell where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll all come home, bringing their tails behind them. You know, that worked for the American church for a long time. We could basically assume that everyone out there who didn't go to church was at least nominally moral and Christian. They knew eventually that they would feel guilty enough to come back home to church. And so if we just have good programs and good preaching and good music then we could trust that they would finally make their way home again. Friends, I want you to know the terrain has changed. Just in the five-mile radius of our church, there are 64,000 people without any religious affiliation. The fastest-growing religious group in America right now are the nuns. And I do not mean women who wear habits. I mean uh, people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. The church must change our approach to the sheep. We've got to move to verse 3 of Little Bo Peep. Do you remember that verse? Then up she took her little crook, determined for to find them. She found them indeed, but it made her heart bleed, for they'd left their tails behind them. Now, I don't know what that last bit means about <laughs> the, the, the blight. No, no, no one's going on with the sheep and their tails there. But, but here, here's what I'm saying, is that In this new age together, we're not just waiting for the sheep to come home. We take up our crooks to find them, even if it makes our hearts bleed. And this is the call of the church. You know, the building can never contain the mission. Don't you love how those, uh, the prayers are just sort of spilling out over and across the cross? I mean, we're we're called out. This is why in the next 10 years, we're going to continue to generously support the work of local and global missions, especially among unreached people in our city and around the world. This is why uh, we are deeply committed to equip you to actually be witnesses, bearing witness to Jesus in your neighborhoods, in your parishes, 
in your places of work. This is why over the next 10 years, we're going to do a big emphasis on equipping you in your work to integrate your faith with your work so that you can be agents of shalom, of God's flourishing in every industry and every place of work around Richmond. This is why uh, we are committed, deeply committed to church planting, why we've raised up people like Juan Ladon, who's now planted Oasis, a church that ministers to the Latino immigrant community in Richmond, and why we continue uh, to focus on the planting of churches to reach new people who have not yet been reached by the gospel. And this is why, you know, our building, we'll be able to enlarge our building so that, you know, we can have more people here. We'll, we'll probably be able to have up to 1,200 people or so, um, you know, on Sunday services. But y'all, we're never going to try to be much bigger than that. We don't want to be. We don't, our goal is not to be the biggest church in Richmond. Our goal is to be a sending church, a multiplying church, a generative church, a church that sends and equips people out to extend the good news of Jesus to all parts of our city through planting churches, through new communities, through extending the gospel through our lives. So that's our DNA. And though the context and the terrain is different, our mission stays the same. We're recommitting to our mission. Well, let me sum up. Lewis and Clark hit those mountains. And what do they do? Well, they remembered who they were. They remembered their commission. They remembered their mission. And they recommitted to their call, even as the terrain looked different. And friends, I just want to say I am just so privileged to be, I, that I get to be your pastor. And this moment in our 185-year-old journey, this is a monumental moment in the life of our church. There's really a few, just a few moments in the life of a church in which we are called so clearly together as one to embrace a common future together. And this is, this is one of those moments. And our 2020 terrain uh, looks really different than the terrain in 1834 or 1873 or 1956 or even 2005. We're facing new things, new obstacles, new mountains. And yet our mission is the same. And so today we're asking you to commit, everyone. We're inviting you to commit. And I want you to know we're not just inviting you to make a commitment to this Renew campaign. I hope you have heard my heart today that what we're doing is we're committing, we're recommitting to God, recommitting to the one who leads us forward in the path. We're recommitting to each other, recognizing that we are a spiritual family woven together, and we're recommitting to our neighbors, to our city, and our world to extend the good news of Jesus. My prayer and hope as your pastor is that in 2030, 10 years from now, that we would look back and that we would not just say, oh, wow, remember that time in our journey when we fixed our building? That was great. Now, how lame is that? You know, my prayer is, is that we would look back on those 10 years and we would say, remember that time when we recommitted to our Lord together? Remember that time we recommitted Remember that, that weaving? Remember the way that we wove ourselves together freshly? Remember that time we recommitted to God's mission? This, this new mission and this new terrain in our neighborhoods, our city, and our world. Remember that time? Has not God done remarkable things? That's my prayer. That's my hope. Let's, let's pray for that. Father, we're so grateful that you've been so good to us and to our church over these last 185 years. And we're just so privileged that we in this time and place get to be part of a new chapter. And so we pray that as we, um, as we move, venture forward, we just surrender ourselves to you. You're our leader, you're our captain, you're our king. 
Lead us forward, we pray, to do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.